Hi there, Jonathan here, editor for the podcast. Just to let you know, there's a lot of cat noises in this one. Toby got really excitable and there was not much that I can do to edit all of that out. So I apologise in advance and I hope that you enjoyed the episode nonetheless. Bye. Hey everybody, welcome to our podcast, Humans Need Apply. We've not been doing this for a little while because <laughs> we've been... Life got busy. <laughs> Life got really busy. I mean, you're preparing for a TED Talk and I everything. I am preparing for a TED Talk, yes. Yeah. Yes, that like fills me with a bit of anxiety. But... Yeah, but it's, it's on the stuff that we talk about anyway. So, so yes. you're, you're doing that. I'm switching jobs. Yes, Chris is switching jobs. Uh, which is fun. Life is basically happening. Yeah, we've uh, at full throttle. A couple of erratic hamsters. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> hamsters, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, maybe I can do like a little plug about TED actually. Yeah, do that'd it. be good. So I'm doing a TEDx talk in Bristol on the 18th of November. Um amazing set of other human beings who are doing that alongside me. It's been an epic thing to do. Yeah, we're hosting it at SS Great Britain. Um, oh, right. Yeah, which is really cool. Um, yeah, fun. Yeah, I, I, I've cycled past there when I had a, I had some time before a meeting and I was like, I'm just going to go for a quick cycle and cycle around that area. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, so shout out to that and you can go and access tickets via the usual, just search for TEDx Bristol. It should yeah. take you there. Do you, do you want to give us a sneak preview of what you're going to be talking about? Yeah, so I'm. it's basically my research, so very much aligning with what we're talking about here, really. So I'm going to be introducing kind of the fundamentals of my work on simulated humans and also this kind of redefining of artificial intelligence beyond technology, but from kind of into the commercial and ideological standpoints of artificial intelligence. I think it's a lot of the stuff we covered in episode one, really. Yeah, it? it is really quite a lot of that. And also some of the stuff that I'd like to talk about today. So, yeah, yeah which is good, really. And what are we talk about today? We are going to be talking about, oh, defining AI. So introducing a concept that I'm currently working on, which I'm calling the three defining pillars of artificial intelligence, but moving into some of the work that Chris and I are doing as part of that as well, which is kind of branching from that research that I've been doing. So we're currently calling it the three defining pillars of AI, but that is changing quite rapidly. Yeah. And I think that's moving into, you know, what we've what I was just saying, which is that AI is not just a technology, it's something that works from commercial and ideological standpoints, but you know, that commercial senses and the ideological sense is very much power and yeah. thinking about the structures of power that work within that. I think as well, just because it's 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 an idea that I've seen floated around quite a bit, which I quite like, which is that the idea of AI is actually more so a form of governance. Mm. It, it's not it's not an individual person. It's not an ideology. It's not quite a tool, except it is all of these things. Yeah. But it impacts everything so to such an extent yeah. that it, it's effectively its own form of. If you imagine a particular law as a kind of economic regulation, mm-hmm. it's an economic governmental tool. AI is going to be the ultimate kind of civilizational governance. Yes eventually yes um, um and i don't think we have any idea what it's going to look like just yet just yet it's still forming itself yes so um, we can talk about some of that today yeah. and also thinking about how that moves into education and faces of that education as well when it comes to ai so who's talking about ai mm. who's educating the general public who's defining ai who's conceptualizing ai and who are the faces that are being chosen to do that and but i think not just on like a broad 
global setting I think it's really important to consider this in a, in a micro environment as well so you know regionally and and within mm-hmm. the UK and within Europe and then I think we're also going to be touching on a little bit of Conway's law introducing yeah. that a little bit today because that that works really well with how we've been kind of conceptualizing our own ideas around artificial intelligence so I think it'd be good to bring that into the conversation because that's good context for further ones that we'll be having it's a good segue into the kind of the systems theoretic approach uh, and and viewing it as an emergent thing rather than a a well-defined thing absolutely and also a way a gateway into thinking about ai ethics as well i Mm, think sure what we call ai ethics yeah and my opinion of it is that ai ethics is just human ethics but ramped up to 100 absolutely yes it's worth noting before we go much further that we are we are joined today by uh, resident dr toby the cat (laughs) who i'm sure at some point throughout will be just on cue inputting <laughs> his valuable thoughts yes yeah also apologies if i sound a bit bunged up i'm still recovering from a cold <laughs> yeah. who isn't right now yeah i know it seems to be a theme yeah also i think i had a couple of notes which was just to talk about the fact that we're changing settings again today so yeah we're back in the lounge yeah my lounge and gonna see how this works yeah <laughs> Um, places where the fellow podcasters maybe record their podcasts yeah. I don't know we're considering going up to like Holden Forest and seeing how that works at some point so yeah, yeah. it could be fun there'll be background noise but it'll be birds and beautiful yeah. nature and yeah. lovely children playing and stuff anyway yeah. talking about tangents that was mm. a tangent so I think this is another thing that I wanted to talk about because we've had like quite a bit of feedback about tangents and how that moves in our relationship and how we talk to each other so we are still playing with this you know you and I when we talk organically together we're on you know tangent central uh, and we go off and come back and although I do think tangent central doesn't make sense as a no, term it's, it's more I, like I a, literally thought that as I said it yeah it's, it's the tangent ring it's, yeah. it, we're kind of going in circles around an idea without yeah. never yeah yeah so we're figuring out how to do that and how to um i don't know make sure that it works for people who are listening but also um works for us and you yeah. get the best out of us and what actually happens when we sit down and talk to each other um and, and a lot of that is that like episode one we just kind of treated it just as a normal conversation yeah um episode two it was more kind of like let's try and rein in, cover a single topic, and I think we can't, we mostly did justice to the topic, but it it felt too structured, yeah, yeah. and I think people felt that it felt yeah. too structured for us. Yeah. So we're we're still kind of seeing where the setting is best. So yes. open to ongoing feedback on that. But at the end of the day, we'd like to think that if the if the content is there and it's being communicated appropriately, then everybody's on board. Absolutely. So like this is just free flow Uh, yeah and then i think also just like explaining to people about what our ideas are about the relationship between how we talk to each our relationship and and how we talk to each other within that so our kind of idea at the moment is that one of us is going to basically have more time in their weeks and so may be able to lead one and that will shift you know every other week or whatever so there may be times where I'm talking a lot and there may be times where Chris is talking a lot. Um, and yeah. And that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Because ultimately, like, there are areas that I'm interested in that Anna's not interested in and vice versa. So one of us is going to take lead on different things. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Okay, cool. So I think I'll start by just... I'm, uh, I'm looking at some research that's in front of me. It's, I'm trying not to be too scripted, but I think it's a good place to start, sure. which is just kind of how we think about the basics of how we define AI. So the philosophy of what we have 
as AI will be no as artificial intelligence has ultimately been studied for centuries and is now being researched and developed. And ultimately, this idea of artificial intelligence began with the concept of creating machines that simulate or imitate human beings, human thinking and human reasoning. Yeah. Um, So it's always been human centric. Yes, absolutely. Sapiocentric, perhaps. Mm, I like that. mm. Because I think like sapient meaning it's centered around thinking beings and humans have often been thought of yes anyway Hmm. so this kind of technological development of ai has kind of branched from this it's continued from this philosophy and i think that's a really important part because it is ultimately underpinned by a lot of philosophical thinking and ways of thinking and that's really important when we're thinking about the journey of ai and, mm-hmm. and how it's moving in in an r&d sense moment and it's very much in that phase of it's going from what was a philosophical discipline to one that is much more pragmatic yeah. it's now interesting word yeah it, it has manifested itself into a place where it has very real impact rather than simply intellectual impact mm. Um, hence kind of talking about some of the economic impacts and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And ultimately this technological development has has developed by copying human thought processes and learning from humans. So a lot of the way that, and you're probably the better one to, to talk about this than me, but a lot of the way that the kind of the, the mathematics works and the ways that the, the patterns are developed for artificial intelligence from a maths perspective is kind of done by copying the mm-hmm. human brain. To an extent. So some models more so than others. The fundamental premise of like so much of this research is what what called neural networks. And that as a kind of, as a structure does loosely mimic the brain. Yeah. Yeah. So having studied both neural nets and the brain, you, you start seeing the dissimilarities more than the similarities. But in principle, I agree with you. Yes. And I think this... The dissimilarities is a really important point as well when we're thinking about how the development of this thing is communicated to the general public, not just, you know, your average person on the high street, but, you know, people who are, you know, within spaces of um, intellectual thought and thinking and and kind of, yes, even to those individuals, it's communicated in that way. And I think that's an important thing to, to think about as we move into this episode. So ultimately, it's widely agreed that the term of artificial intelligence was officially coined in 1956 by American computer science scientist John McCarthy, one of the one of the greats. And since this, there has been numerous different definitions for artificial intelligence, but mostly from a technological perspective proposed by people in science and people in technology who are researching and developing this thing. So I think ultimately this kind of branches on to looking at kind of the the technological definitions alongside the actual operations of of AI technologies. So it's widely agreed at the moment that AI is located within engineering and technology, but kind of and within these fields, sorry, AI is defined as a as a machine or a software program that exhibits some characteristics of intelligence. Mm-hmm. And and intelligence is kind of defined as thinking and reasoning and planning and learning and adapting. Yeah. And again, the terms thinking and reasoning are coming out. Yeah. These two words are used yeah, an awful lot. And it's one of the things that you and I have talked about a little bit when we talked about IQ a little bit, I think, in the last mm. episode. And a lot of the time, the problem that we run into is that fundamentally we're 
dealing with with constructs, and constructs can't be evaluated on truthiness. They can only be evaluated on utility. Constructs come into existence because they serve a purpose. So it's 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 always what's the word I'm looking for? The Greek root is telos. Like it's not telerific. I can't remember the the actual word. It'll come to me later. But basically, constructs are always goal oriented, mm. and we have a general kind of heuristic of intelligence that we can kind of use in day-to-day parlance that makes sense to us and generally what we mean is somebody who can get a wide array of stuff done but then when you dig deep into it the construct itself doesn't have much validity Mm. and that's the problem that we have can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by constructs obviously this is a word that both you and i are very familiar with sure maybe others might not be yeah so Hmm. it's interesting i've never actually had to define what a construct is because it the construct of a construct is as I've linguistically pointed out there, also a construct. So a a construct is a thing that doesn't have any bearing in a physical, material, objective thing. It is something that is, it's a higher order object that we create to make sense of other fundamental layers. So an example to come to kind of in in a more STEM area would be the concept of gravity. Most physicists now think gravity doesn't really exist in the way that most people think it does. It's something of not quite an illusion, but it, it is a perceived effect of something else happening, which is the warping of space-time. Mm. But the construct of gravity has been incredibly useful for the study, so it's stuck around and we've developed it and used it for various things. More generally, when we talk about constructs, we're just thinking about things that are products of reason rather than products of the fundamental laws of physics, mm. would be how I would categorize that. So when we talk about things like money or gender or intelligence or even more simple things like coffee has a physical instantiated thing the software engineers in the room will know what i mean when i say there's like a there's a class and then an instantiation of the class i can describe a thing so i can describe one plus one in a purely philosophical constructed sense but i can also instantiate that using objects to represent one plus one yeah so yeah Absolutely. And, and I think I'm going to I'm going to define it. And, and, you know, we've talked about this a lot and we agree in a lot of the ways that we both define constructs. I think an, a, another way of thinking about it from kind of a more sociological, <laughs> political way is that ultimately thinking about discussions of race. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a, a lot of the way that race is discussed is that there's just one human race. Mm-hmm. But human biology doesn't actually define people into different races. Sure. Racism, the construct of racism, sure. it that's what insists on that division. Yeah. So racism within that with race, sorry, is 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 a construct. Yeah. Constructed by racism. What, what you could say behind that though, and I'm I'll try and be careful with my words here because I it's not something I know a huge deal about, but the the concept of race has become somewhat deconstructed and now in terms of objective non less constructed things we talk about ancestry groups yes so lineage can kind of be objectively defined race is much more so a construct for example yeah and it's it's, that's although it's really important to to discuss the fact that ultimately there is just one human race and that biology human biology doesn't divide people into different races people who are on 
who are arguing, you know, for people who are in the post-colonial side of theoretical perspectives, people who are race race theorists, people who are, you know, working to create an anti-racist society, they do use concepts of race in order to articulate their narratives and yeah. their stories and their lived experiences. So it's, 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 it's really valid in those ways. Yeah. It's just important to also recognise that it's still a construct. Yeah, so I'll just be a little bit nitpicky because so the term valid there, mm. because we're talking about constructs, when we say valid, we can say within a given yes. frame. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you, so it's one of those, I get told off a little bit for this because, so I think we can say objective things about subjective beliefs. Yeah. So I think... We, okay. we can say, okay, so let's let's assume this frame of belief. Mm. I can then say from this point, objectively, this is what mm, it would look like. Yeah. So, for example, like Sam Harris talks about, like, let's just make the very basic assumption about, you know, morality is about the, the reduction of suffering and the, the pursuit of well-being. Mm. Okay, so let, let's just assume that from there I can make objective claims about pretty much everything else, and that should be our rational basis for morality. Mm. So assume simple frame axiom. And then everything from there downstream is objective. And it's really, that's important as well to think about like how we create signifiers when we're discussing things as well. So the kind of the concept of, I'm just going to go back to that because I'm using that as an example, yeah. like the concept of race is ultimately this kind of cultural and historical category that uses a variety of different skin tones in order, order to signify difference. Yeah. And again, and, and working through those signifiers is, is an important, and how we develop signifiers is an important part of how we discuss constructions yeah. of reality, ultimately. Yeah, and this is the thing, is ultimately, and I don't want to dwell on this too much because we'll yeah. get really sidetracked, and yeah. I want to get, get back to the bit. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah. You've got hit, uh, plot points you need to hit yes. today, yeah. uh, and I'm stopping you getting there. So a, a lot of construct is we like to have an internal model of how the world works. Mm as like a mini simulation that we run things in so that we can feel safe operating in the actual material world. Yeah. So the weaving of stories and narratives and the use of constructs in that fashion is like one of the most innately human things. Yeah. I think as, a, as an exercise to the listener, I would ask the question, what are the signifiers of humanness? Mm. Because most people will come down to, okay, well, it's the brain, it's consciousness, it's reproduction. Mm. And it's very, very difficult to not reduce humanity to very little quite quickly yeah. when you go down that route. Absolutely. And this is what I discuss a lot in my work when it comes to robotics mm -hmm. and how AI is embedded within robotics, yeah. and especially humanoid robotics, so robots yes. that look like human beings, is that ultimately these very prescribed and you know maybe reductive ways of constructing humanness are used because they're quick fixes, they're quick ways yeah, yeah, yeah. of identifying certain bodies that can then be commercialised in certain spaces. Well, and the other thing is that they're useful. Mm. That The fact that they're quick, they have high mimetic... They're useful within a certain frame uh, perspective, yes. Yes, and I'm specifically thinking about kind of mimesis, yeah. the ability for an idea to spread and and colonize the minds of people mm. um it, the, the idea some of the ideas that these robotics companies are, are using have high mimetic values mm. um which is really useful for them in terms of commercialization yeah again we value creating beings mm. we don't have a strong objective definition for what humanity is or is not all of the facets that we tend to hold on to 
can be easily deconstructed. Mm. And there's a degree of, I promised I wouldn't tangent too much. So I'll, I'll, I'll say this bit and then I'll let you get back to your bit. Um, uh, there's a degree of like value warfare that happens. These ideas, these constructs are perpetually fighting for screen time, as it were. And we need to, I, I think, come to the, the agreement, you know, th- there's no objective morality, there's no objective truth with some of this stuff. Um, hey, Toby. It sounds like Toby agrees with me. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Or he's disagreeing, I don't actually know. <laughs> you okay, Toby? <laughs> okay. Yes. So the, the only thing that we can do is try and surround ourselves. Do you want to pick because, him up? Yeah, this is because you've like... Come here, buddy. <laughs> I might edit this bit out. Yeah, sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye, Toby. Thank you. Your input was valuable. Okay, Toby's gone. So all we can really do in terms of values and whatnot is try and su- surround ourselves with people that share in those value systems. And I don't want to say wage war against those who disagree with us strongly, but that there's definitely an extent to which we need to be, be psychoimmunized against certain ideas. Mm. And so I'm getting very distracted by Toby, who is trying to get back in. The... I stopped him from being able to get back in because he will just yell at you. He's been cancelled from the conversation. He wants, he wants cuddles from you, Tess Brittany. So... I don't know if I can do cuddles and... I just want to say as well, this does... Like, like it's sunny outside. Oh yeah, he's having he's a great time. Plenty of water and food outside. Yeah. Like, he's very fine. He's just very... In need well, of he snacks. has needs because he's um, an animal. A, a sapient being. Where were we? Yeah, so let me try and retrace that because I didn't put it as well as I wanted to. So yeah, we, we have these values. Some of them are useful in certain contexts. And we have to start thinking in terms of how do we architect the game that we're playing as a civilization. Mm-hmm. That, that's ultimately the goal. I think of this podcast is as I think about it more is we're figuring out ways of architecting rather than just playing. Mm-hmm. And... We need to find, like, what is the best definition of human mm. for civilization to continue to flourish and for us to look after our people? Yeah. It doesn't have to be quote unquote true. Mm. Such a thing doesn't really exist. I wish it did. Yeah. So we need to find that, stick to that. And that's why I think defining what AI is, defining what robotics is, yeah. and then saying what it isn't yeah. as well is really useful. That's- I'm smiling because. A huge part of what I'm about to go and do some research in is different definitions of what it means to be he- as what is a human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just what it like, it's like the be before what it means to be human. It's like what do what have we defined? What is what is a human? Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, and that's like a huge part of my research that I'm doing in this because yeah. it's so fundamental. Well, I'll pass the contract to you then because I've done my spiel now. Yeah, no, I was actually thinking about you were talking about kind of maybe certain aims of why people might utilize AI, which mm-hmm. I think can you know, move really nicely into what I was going to say next was that ultimately the, the general scientific and, and technological aims of AI researchers and developers is, is to create systems that understand, think, learn and behave like humans. Um, and I think we've already kind of covered this, but it's it's AI has become this umbrella term or shorthand for that covers lots of different kinds of related technologies, computer technologies as well, such yeah. as you know machine learning and computer vision, data mining, natural language processing, and yeah. agent ontology. But the the things that those kind of sorry those those kind of different computer technologies have in common is that they're trying to mimic, what? yeah, simulate 
human learning, human behaviour. But it's yeah. these, it, and and it's. I think this is why it's really important that it's artificial intelligence, not artificial human. Yeah. Because it's only a very specific kind of a, a part of yeah. what it what makes up a human being or yeah. a sentient. Being. Yeah, and and I think a lot of this definitional game, as you said, like these are disparate technologies all being put under the same umbrella. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't call any of them artificial no, intelligence. No, we've had this conversation a lot, and I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and, and I I think it's especially important when we start considering like existential or catastrophic threat level, mm. because suddenly when, like, if you imagine, people understood the idea that you know it is entirely possible that like silicon can become conscious with the right programming, that that would be a form of like actual artificial intelligence or even artificial human, as we might call it. Mm. Suddenly the narrative, that thing could become bad or might not be good, makes a hell of a lot more sense. Yeah. Whereas I think the framing most people have, for example, is my Alexa, it can only do if-then statements. It can just tell me the news. That could never become evil. So it's I, I think the framing and the... And, and this comes to the thing, like, who is... Who is the one pushing the narrative, yeah. etc., really matters here. Because it's not, and also it's not Alexa that's saying those things. Like mm. Alexa isn't doesn't exist, friends. Well, it does, but Alexa's not. Oh, I don't know. I'd want to think about. It. Does Alexa exist? Oh. I was I was reading an article about social media and like there's a lot of people who are you know who maybe are the elder millennials the middle ground millennials and and you know older who are you know saying social media isn't real Hmm. and then we've got a lot of younger millennials and gen z and and now you know gen alpha who are saying but it is well, and then this gets into that kind of like really, oh, I know that there are going to be people who are like, oh, he's doing that again. But it's like, it depends what you mean by exist. Well, and this is the thing. And, and actually, philosophically, in my work, I actually just don't go into what is real and what isn't real and what exists and what doesn't exist. What is map and what is territory. Exactly. Yeah. Like, oh, do we need to explain that one? Yeah, yeah. so basically there's this idea of the, the map is not the territory. You can create a, a detailed map of any part of the planet or whatever but you're going to get there and the weather's going to be different or there's going to be a frog on the road or there's going to be you know whatever that there are degrees of detail where in order to accurately represent it on a map it would just have to be the territory in and of itself yes but there are certain spaces especially kind of more philosophical intellectual spaces where the map can start to feel more like territory than the territory itself yes and that's where we are with metaverse for example and also the ways that we discuss for research versus industry and things like that sure yeah i think that's maybe a helpful way of positioning it for those who might be listening the research would be the map and the industry would be the actual terrain oh interesting question i in or in some ways, I actually think industry is the instantiation of some of the ideas being discussed by the academia. Mm. I think they are a full system in symbiosis. Mm. I, I'd love it if they were. Like, I don't know, the academic side of me is like, no, academia is like super special and like operates in a totally different space. And then the industry part of me is just like, yeah, but the academics don't know what they're talking about. The real world is like this. The, the territory is we're the territory. We're interesting creatures because we're both. Like, yeah, both well, yeah, exactly. Are very much aligned with both, which, yeah. you know, is... So it gets tricky. Yeah. 
Anyway, what were we talking about? Map terrain. What's real? What's real? So I just, thank you, I just don't... This is the most psychotic, like, <laughs> tangent. What is real? <laughs> <laughs> but, like, um, that, that is something that, you know, my mind thinks about on a very frequent, most-day basis, you know, and, and and sometimes I have to escape into nature in order to, to kind of forget about the fact that my brain likes to think about that because, you know, it's, it can lead to some interesting thoughts. And... And rabbit holes mm. and but like ultimately i just i just don't even go into that because it's so it's just not even the point mm. like it doesn't kind of matter actually because it just doesn't sorry i've just i've just had like a slightly crazy idea i haven't thought it through but i want to share it because okay. we were going to get onto conway's law anyway yes I'm, I'm wondering to what extent the platonic realm so okay for, we were going to get onto this later so conway's law is effectively the idea that the product of an organisation will always reflect the properties of said organisation. And th- this is true of kind of any structure, any 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 system from which things can emerge. Mm-hmm. I'm now wondering whether or not, and this is a kind of Don Hoffman, the universe is just a user interface to some kind of like underpinning reality. I'm, I'm wondering whether it's useful to consider the platonic realm as a hierarchy from which reality emerges rather than the other way around, because in that sense the territory is just like the Conway uh, emerged thing from the idea. So in that sense, Alexa also does exist. And anyway, we'll come back to that later. I haven't thought about it. Yeah, let's let's try and see if we can come back to that like later on in this episode. And if we can't, then we're going to sit down and think about that. And yeah, this segues really nicely, though, into kind of real and not real one of the things that I argue is that we have to also situate artificial intelligence within pop culture and kind of public narratives, because ultimately from its conception in the 16th century, sci-fi, science fiction has been a way for us to understand new technologies and artificial intelligence as that kind of umbrella bracket has been a major theme in this. Could could you just clarify what you mean by situated? Mm. Okay, you've asked me this before, you know. And I think I actually came up with a really good answer. I think it's it's about thinking contextually. So okay. it's it's AI isn't just it's not just important to think about the context of technology and the evolution of technology gotcha. when we're thinking about artificial intelligence, defining and conceptualizing artificial intelligence, and just having general discussions about it. It's also really important to context contextually think about and respect that a lot of the ways that this thing has been philosophized mm-hmm. has also happened within pop culture and within gotcha. kind of public discourse and actually you know it's been it's quite new when we're thinking about human ways of of, of thinking and conceptualizing that pop culture and public narratives aren't kind of the same thing because a lot of the ways that political thinking a lot of the ways that people within the public discussed things together was through literature it was through you know there was literature that was disseminated and that then was um, taken on board by the public and then there were active spaces lots of spaces within you know where where that could be discussed by the general public you know lots of coffee houses and and that's where you know and pubs and things like that and these things have become less I don't want to say less important because I actually think we need to bring it all back. And I'm like, thinking about the amazing conversations that you and they've I been have less valued. Strangers. Yes, they're less valued. Yeah, but and this for me is that kind of techno anthropo techno anthropological yes. piece. Yeah, 
the te- technology shapes us and we shape it. Absolutely. And I think that actually social media has kind of become... So I'm thinking, OK, that literature, that pamphlet might be a Netflix documentary. I'm thinking about sure. Black Mirror. That's one that everybody kind of must know by now. It's it's an, an amazing way of, of kind of contextualising and considering artificial intelligence and other similar technologies... And maybe places like social media have become spaces where people actually discuss that and think about it. And, and that has a massive impact and influence on how we connect with these things in our so-called everyday and in other contexts. How we interact with it in the supermarket, how we interact with it at school, how we, inter- yeah. you know, like our, you know, within hospitals and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But also how we consider these things in kind of intellectual spaces and research and development spaces as well. Yeah, I think I had a question for you mm-hmm. on this, actually, which I've, uh, which was... Do, do you mind if I interject at this point, just because I've got a thought that I might lose? Yeah, you go And, the, and then it's easier yeah, to come back to the question fine, that you've yeah. got. I think there's this weird fundamental thing with social media where it feels like a full psychological break mm. from reality. Mm. <clears throat> now, I don't know if it's because we have some weird... What's the term where if you can't see it in front of you, it's object permanence. Oh, I, it, yeah. I, I'm wondering whether it is some kind of like object permanence adjacent idea. I think Black Mirror is fantastic. I think the ideas in it are fantastic and they're very, very well executed. I do wonder whether or not the fact that these things are used as an escape and in some cases intentionally designed to be an escape in the way social media is, I think, for example. It's designed to be a break away. Don't worry about anything else in in your life. The only thing that matters is the news story in front of you right now for the next 15 seconds. Mm. It does make me wonder, like, yeah, maybe we're communicating it really well, but it's being communicated in such a fashion that it feels not real. So it's like, yes, this is a really important thing for the kind of imagined non-real world. And that people treat that as a separate territory. Do you think that maybe this is about, from an anthropological perspective, that ultimately the human brain is only designed to deal with a very small village? Yeah. And we're supposed to know, you know, those it's something like like fifty faces or something. Uh, it's like, like it, it, yeah, Dunbar's number is like yeah. it's like a hundred to one hundred and fifty or something like that. And and you know, and there's there's levels of how well you'd know that there's like ranks of how well you'd know those people yeah, yeah, as yeah. well, and you'd be related to quite a few of yeah. them. Yeah. And if you're not related to them, your your relatives have known their relatives for. A very long time yeah so like and 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 you'd only really have knowledge of of that village and even when it comes to nomadic you know villages as well it's it's still the same thing yeah it would be more the thing we're talking about this anthropologically and maybe there's something in that as well It's, it's almost like the there's there's like a level of I can deal with this, but then my my it there is a disconnect because yeah. I can't actually cope, or the brain's not designed yeah. to cope with. Yeah, so we can only have a shallow understanding of it. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons. Like now, I'm, I know you do, and I'm sure people have picked up from from listening to us for long enough that I've got something of an anti authority streak going through me. You know, no, who'd have thought? <laughs> Look, I'm a, I'm a contrarian by necessity, not by desire. <laughs> The, I do, however, think it's somewhat worrisome that people are expected to just like have an opinion on absolutely everything, mm. because it does force this kind of like shallow yeah. understanding of a million segments. And if you have the wrong binary opinion on each of those segments, then you're somehow in the out group. Absolutely. Uh, and I, that that's, I think that paints a very different map of what the territory actually is. Because when you enter the real world and people have a conversation together, it's very clear that most people 
at least maybe not Gen Z and Alpha, because I've spent a lot of time around those people being Gen Z myself. Like they kind of struggle with this, but most other people are still perfectly capable of having dinner with someone they disagree with on a lot of things. Mm. Anyway, that's my big tangent again. I was also just thinking about like the ways that we interact with the world as well. So like a lot of the ways that we're interacting with social media and with pop culture that's, you know, televised, etc. and similar platforms. It's only only certain amount, there's only, you know, two senses, maybe three senses that are being used in that interaction. But, you know, ultimately we use all of our senses and mm. I'm talking beyond the five that we get we get taught yeah, <laughs> at sure. school and oh, that's really sorry Toby's Toby just wants to get involved in the conversation today I, I think more than senses as well we can talk about like specific faculties yes. so I think one of the biggest things and, and this is coming from my kind of my I wouldn't say my background and I think that would be an unfair claim but my kind of long-term interest in, in psychopathology or neuropathology and disorders like Capgras syndrome, mm. where a specific faculty, something like facial recognition, will get knocked out due to some kind of brain trauma. And it totally changes the, the, the psychology of the, of the patient. Mm. So for example, like we treat people differently based on whether we've seen their face or whether we've heard their voice. And until those things get triggered, we actually don't get much Sorry, Toby's being... Okay. So, so until something like facial recognition or vocal recognition gets triggered, there isn't actually a particularly strong emotional faculty that gets fired off in the brain. And this is like a measurable thing. So I, I think that speaks kind of directly to what, what you're talking about, except instead of a sense, it's a specific yeah. faculty. My question was, why do we think... AI has been such a big thing in sci-fi and used as a tool for self-reflection. And I have a note which is for to to ask Chris about one of his favourite books. Oh right, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> <coughs> okay, so <coughs> give me a minute while so I'm excited. <coughs> I've been waiting for this moment my whole life. So I think one of one of the reasons it's been so popular is because it speaks to like fundamental drives for power. Yeah. We're talking about something that gives us absolute freedom mm. in many ways. And I think that's always going to be a drive. I think there's also something about the fact that we kind of intrinsically know that it's dangerous, mm. which kind of turns a lot of us on that kind of explorer instinct. Yeah. But I think the other thing is, as you point out, it is a tool for self-reflection. We've created something that is... It's kind of uncanny valley. Mm. It's kind of like us, but it's not like us in a small way, which means we can look at it kind of objectively. Mm. Our ego gets removed because we're no longer associated to it strongly. So we get to look at it as like the separate thing and analyze that objectively mm. rather than with all of our preconceived biases about how amazing humans are and how amazing I am and how amazing my, my country folk are. And it, it's just uncanny enough that it separates us from that. I think there's also an extent to which it plays on a trope a lot of the time, which which I kind of... I don't know if this is a thing, if anybody in the audience has done like film study or something like that and can find a, a, a citation for this, because th- this is a, a, a thing that popped him into my brain one day. It, is, it plays on the, the dialectic between sophisticated and primal. Mm. 
So I always think about, like, in Jurassic Park, what is the scariest creature? Hmm. It's not the T-Rex. The T-Rex is big and, like, oh... It's the little buddies. It's the the little velociraptors, right? Because the whole point is they're clever and bloodthirsty. Hmm. And it's the same with vampirism. Or why do people love Hannibal so much? He's incredibly sophisticated. And by love, I don't mean... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I'm sure some people do love him. In yeah, let's not go into the little... <laughs> yeah, that, that, that gets... Yeah. So it's the whole... He's incredibly sophisticated and has an impulse that he has to keep under control. Mm. And I think there's something about that with AI where it's like, this is incredibly sophisticated and we know that it's got something under the hood. Mm. And I think it's that tension, especially when we look at dysregulated AI... Something where it's like, like Hal, for example, we got it, you know, Hal from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. It's an old enough film I feel I have to check nowadays whether people... No, that are... was 2001 Space Odyssey, by the way, for those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I cut you off then. Yeah, yeah. It's a good, good one for people to go and look at. Yeah. And the, the whole thing with Hal is he's got this one, like, ingrained rule, which is, like, the mission is the ultimate thing. Mm. And it's that small little... It's kind of like a primal thing that it can't overcome, even though it could work out that it's right. And it's super sophisticated and intelligent. Yeah. So that's one trope I think it plays on. And I think the other thing that's worth noting is, as much as people think like, oh, you know, sci-fi, sci-fi, Terminator could never happen, iRobot could never happen, all of these things, blah, blah, blah. To to, to an extent, I think that they are the wrong bits of sci-fi to focus on, because I think we've got bigger problems coming before we get to Terminator. Mm -hmm. I think it's worth considering that some of the smartest people on the planet, so I'm thinking like Frank Herbert and Isaac Asimov, for example, some of the most intelligent, brilliant, wonderful creative thinkers who had a really rich understanding of the, not just like a particular domain, but like the fabric of culture. Mm. So Asimov in his his books, I'm thinking the Foundation series in particular, although iRobot as well, mm. a lot of the commentary is around people and understanding people and how they work and what could come from this particular kind of society of people. Mm. And both in the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov and in the Dune series by Frank Herbert, AI doesn't make an appearance. Mm. And that's kind of really strange. Until you realise... So I, I haven't looked into why it is the case with Foundation, but with... Although I've got a couple of theories kind of thinking about it. With... With Dune, most people have only seen the first film. Yes. Or perhaps read the first book. Yes. There's an entire backstory as to why there is no AI and to why there are the mentats, the kind of the humans with immense computational power, instead of, quote, thinking computers. And it's because there was an entire religious jihad against thinking computers because they all recognised how fucking dangerous that could be. Holy shit, we need to get rid of them. Mm. That was written in, like, the 1950s. And I think he was way ahead of his time in understanding a lot of the risks that were associated with this. And I think when people who have that keen of an understanding, and I'd highly recommend that anybody who's just watched the film also reads the book, because you get an insight into the fact that he clearly understood the internal monologue of all of the powerful people in conversation with each other and the small games and the small... But both him and Asimov had a really rich understanding of the importance of religion and the power that that in, imparts. Yeah. I, <laughs> Do you know, the that's the diatribe. That, no, that was... And the things that were coming into my mind were Planet of the Apes. Okay, yeah. Okay. And also, I have a fascination with whales. Whales are my, you know, one of my absolute favourite I didn't animals. know this. And... Learn something new every day. Yeah. 
and and I'm really I, I do love dolphins as well, but whales really are the you know peak. Anyway, and can I, we take a minute to appreciate the fact that dolphins sleep hemispherically? Yeah, that that blows my mind a little bit. Well, this is this is all part of it. So so because I'm. I love them as creatures. I've read a lot about them. And, sure. and I do really love them, but I think a part of that love is I'm is because I'm also a bit terrified of them. Okay. Because it's also so you, you were talking about like sophisticated and intelligent. Uh-huh. And I was, you know, I think one of like I remember being a kid and like and reading about the the evolution of whales because this has been a child from childhood. Yeah, okay. And and you know the realization that these things were land based animals at one point. And in my wait, whales were land based mammals at one point. Yeah. Whoa. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, obviously not whales themselves. No, no, no. Yeah, but yeah. Oh, that's good. So they, they they were fish. Then they went on land, got legs, and the ability to lay eggs. Sorry to. No, I don't think they were. Yes, yeah. Well, yeah, they must yeah. have been. Yeah, I was about to say, no, my, sorry, my brain. And then they went back. Yes, yes, yes. They were like, fuck this, it's too warm. And it's something about, like, the coastal, like, their, their food and, like, yeah, and then learning, like, to hold their breath for the food. Sick. And, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Anyway, so, what was I saying? Yeah, so there's still, like, a little fear. When I'm, like, watching the many programmes that I watch about these creatures... There's especially like or like killer whales. Oh yeah. There's like a little fear every now and again. It's like, oh my god, they could grow their legs again, and like, <laughs> what if they could, and then they interacted with us, you know, on land. Well, it's one of the things I'm like really keen to see if Neuralink eventually gets to the point where we can translate roughly what animals are thinking or feeling. Yeah. Like, because I'm convinced, like, certain animals do 100% have like complex inner lives. Yes. Absolutely. Especially whales and dolphins. And also, you know, we've talked a lot about octopuses and no, what's octo you taught taught me this. Oh, octopuses is fine, but octopodes, I think, yeah, would be the correct because it's a Greek word, not Thank a Latin you. word. Um and, you know, cuttlefish and yeah. you know, other Yeah. And 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 you know, the no, I'm not gonna go into that right now. Yeah. <laughs> we can do a whole episode on cuttlefish <laughs> if we want. But yeah, that's that was what was going into my head. Anyway, I'm going to move this into this really nicely segues into what I want to talk about next, okay. which was the fact that AI has this kind of huge institutional and cultural momentum, uh-huh. and many are kind of viewing it and selling it as a technology that could reshape businesses, cities, and governments. I don't know why I said it like that because it absolutely will do those things. It already uh-huh. is. But ultimately, you know, this is one of the things that I talk a lot about in my kind of public speaking and in my research is that the technological capabilities of artificial intelligence have been conflated through popular culture and through public narratives, specifically those that are commercialising it. And and also AI's kind of alignment with scientific ways of knowing or scientisms. Sure. Um, And it's my opinion, and I'd love to hear your response to this because I know that you're going to have them, have one or many. This kind of conflation obscures AI's true definitions as not only a technology, but what we've talked about, which is kind of this layered and interdependent arrangement of technology, institutions and ideology that work within and then promote structures of power. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think... Right, run the question by me again. I got lost because there was a lot of like... There's a lot in that. In yeah, it. no, I know. I think what I'm kind of asking you, and before you go into this, I actually would really like to do a shout out to a researcher who I really feel like I need to do a shout out to. So the the question I think is that ultimately kind of 
AI does have this huge institutional and cultural momentum. It has this huge, and, and people are viewing it as almost like the saviour. You think about all of these kind of huge risks that we we have uh, coming um, at us at the moment, and AI is being thrown back as the the saviour, gotcha. you know? And, and actually there's a lot of religious iconography that's being used and oh, that, yeah. Yeah, that's being discussed. But ultimately, you know, the technological capabilities of artificial intelligence have been conflated. Mm-hmm. And and that ultimately this is through pop culture, it's through public narratives, specifically those about commercialising that are commercialising it and also through science and its and its relationship with science. And but those kind of those narratives have have that have done that conflation, have conflated AI, kind of obscures it in its true nature. Mm-hmm. That that it's not only a technology but one that is but but an arrangement, sorry, of tech, institutional power, and also ideological power that all kind gotcha. of, you know, shape and create and recreate mm-hmm. these systems of power that we're already working within. Okay. Who did you need to shout out? Right. So this is, so a lot of the ways that I've been talking about AI as this kind of structured, layered and interdependent arrangement is, is actually based on an amazing researcher called Dan McQuillan. And he's a book on my bookshelf. Yes, I bought you that book. You did buy me that book. So a whole year ago. A whole year ago, because I did, I did the, I, I did the release of it at at the University of Bristol. Dan McQuillan is a McQuillan, sorry, is a lecturer in creative and social computing, and he's currently based at Goldsmiths, University of London. And the book that we're talking about that I bought Chris for his birthday last year was "Resisting AI: An Anti-Fascist Approach to Artificial Intelligence." And one of the kind of core things that Dan McQuillan talks about in his research is that although AI represents a technological shift in the framework of society, there's this important difference between the grandiose rhetorics or sci-fi storylines that obscure it and actually how it operates in the world today. And that this is kind of potentially done on purpose, Hmm. although he doesn't, I don't think he actually, you know, I don't know, purpose is a uh, kind of... Uh, particular and strong way of of getting that across Um, but he you know talks about how this is kind of the technology works within institutional power Um, yeah yeah so i just wanted to do a shout out to him yep cool so quick bit of housekeeping i remembered the word from earlier which is goal oriented which is teleological when when something is done with respect to a goal Mm. Um, so obscurantism ai narratives institutions of power let's go so there's a couple of things I could attack here. I, I think the main one is because we're talking about narratives, really. Narratives aren't intrinsically bad. Mm. I think actually many of them are intrinsically good. I think for a lot of human history, okay, what I'll do is I'll, I'm, I'm going to state my, my, my thesis and then, I'll, and then I'll come back to why. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll backtrack to it okay. a little bit. Right. I think today we are a people desperately searching for a new religion of some kind, a new grand narrative. Um, this is the kind of post-postmodernist phase. We, we, we went through modernism where we had this, like, no, science will be our saviour. Yeah. Prior to that, we had organised religion. Yeah. Prior to that, we had, like, just, like, tribalism, cultism, paganism, like, in general, kind of nature-oriented, which, which I think was probably quite, like, a, a stable, safe thing until various historical things happened, which yeah. we won't go into here. <laughs> and Anna is pulling her face of, please don't. But also, uh, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll leave that for another time. So... We, we went through that kind of organised religion, started collapsing because Enlightenment philosophy, and then it went very postmodern and ironic 
and we deconstructed all of the constructs that had been useful to us for so long, and now I think we're desperately in search of something new. A lot of that is being filled with various kind of political ideologies. A lot of it is not being filled at all and is leaving us with a generation of very, very kind of drifting. Hopeless. Hopeless. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't even say hopeless. I would say nihilistic. We've got a lot of, yeah, like suicide, for example. Sorry, that yeah. was a triggery word and I'm really sorry for those that I didn't... Well, I think we said right at the beginning of we the podcast is just trigger warnings all round. Yeah, but, you know, there is a lot of suicide happening within young people. Yeah. It's really... Yeah, I'm not terrible. sure if you've seen that there are actually forums encouraging it. I, I for obvious reasons, won't name them. For climate... No, no, not even antinatalism. The belief that it, it's this really fucked up thing, and this is what I mean when we're reaching for religion. This bizarre idea. I'm going to say this. This is a really cancelable thing to say. So I, I will hope that the listener can understand where I'm coming from. There's been a massive, massive overburdening on the concept of consent in every domain, to the point where we've seen a rise in antinatalism, which has a kind of core tenets, a core tenet of. I didn't give consent to be birthed into this world, therefore that act was immoral. And therefore, you know, that then pairs up with the like various nihilistic conceptions of like, well, it was wrong for me to have been brought in because it was non-consensual. Life is shit. I might as well just end it. And it's this really tragic, horrifying thing. And there are forums, and I hope people don't look them up, but they do exist. I feel like I've just Streisand affected that, but apologies. Yeah, they're bad. There's a really good video for people who are interested by a YouTuber called Tantacruel, T-A-N-T-A-C-R-U-L. He's a brilliant kind of Irish musician and video essayist. And he randomly did a, a video essay on this topic. It's about an hour. It's like a mini documentary and it's just brilliant. Anyway, massive depressing tangent apologies. I think we're desperately reaching for things to believe in in a world that doesn't seem to make sense anymore because we've deconstructed so far. Now, I don't think deconstruction is intrinsically bad, but I do think it's gotten to the stage where we need to start. We're very good at saying, not that. Not that narrative. I disagree with that because I can deconstruct that. I don't want that. We're not so good at collectively saying that. Yeah. I believe in that. Yeah. The only times that we seem to be good at doing that are during obvious existential moments. So war, when the ozone depletion thing was like imminent. Um, there's something weird going on with the, the climate stuff at the minute because I, I haven't figured it out. It's like when ozone collapse was like a very real possible thing, everybody actually banded together and very rapidly put climate controls in place to prevent that. And we're not doing that here. And I think it might be the long-term thing. Like ozone, it was a few years. With this, it's like 40. I don't know. So yeah, there's an extent to which AI looks like, well, if we all band behind this one thing, that's human emancipation, right? That's clearly human emancipation from all of our suffering. Great, let's band together behind that. And it breeds this kind of negativity blindness. We refuse to see some of the potential downsides. And I think then especially with this kind of obscurantism mentality that a lot of these companies are having in terms of no, guys, this is totally safe. Here are the things we're doing to make it safe. Don't worry, guys, regulation's coming into play. Oh, don't worry, that's all just like sci-fi garbage, which, by the way, is like... I don't think I've actually mentioned him on the podcast all that much. I've given a couple of talks where I've mentioned him. The chief AI scientist for Meta, is a guy called Yann LeCun, said... I've forgotten the quote verbatim, but it's effectively like, 
the only way that AI could become harmful is if we designed it to be so, and we'll obviously design it to not be so. Yeah. And I'm like, have you not heard of like collateral collateral damage or people making mistakes or like yeah. malaligned incentives? Yeah. Like the, the the natural gravitational poles here aren't necessarily great. Yeah. So I think the obscurantism is intentional. Mm-hmm. I think the thing I might disagree with Dan on, Dan McQuillan that is, is that I think some of some of the degradation of the sci-fi narrativism is actually unhealthy as well. Mm-hmm. I think just saying all of that is sci-fi bad, I think actually incentivizes some of the fascist rhetoric that he's trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. Because I think that some of this is like really smart people have come up with counter-narratives, which we should be paying attention to as well. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. A really good point, actually, about how there's different ways of disseminating knowledge and we need to be paying attention to to those ways. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm very much into literature and film. and Yeah. AI has the same problem that climate does right now, which is a lack of good storytellers. Well, Chris, it's almost like there needs to be somebody who has another podcast where they do a lot of storytelling about these things. And yeah, yeah. Luckily, there, there there are a few good ones actually out there, <laughs> thankfully. Um, Sorry, for those listening, Chris is currently thinking about this as a concept yes. and it sounds amazing. So we'll be plugging that at some point. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, I think... What, what do you think about all of it? I think so. Because you've asked me the question, I want to bounce it back to you. Do you know what? I I, I, I think you've said some things I haven't thought about before. So, and definitely resonated. And I could feel myself agreeing with you I think that I think I'm just looking at like some of my notes and I I ultimately feel like that that AI does poach some of its legitimacy from science yeah by being associated with these kind of methods of scientific analysis and that some of the its kind of technological authority and I'm using that word purposefully, is kind of established through this alignment with superiority when it comes to scientific ways of knowing and the way that science has been conceptualised and articulated for a very, very, very long time. Mm -hmm. I think that AI kind of perpetuates this view from nowhere and that's very much... the and, And... and that very much aligns with scientific ways of knowing is this kind of like objective way of viewing the world. And a lot of the ways that my, you know, a lot of the things that I talk about in my research is that actually like that lens, that neutral lens doesn't exist from a human perspective. Humans are going to always have different lenses of which they view the world. And what I mean by that is there are experiences, lived experience that we have and constructions of reality of which we've discussed that we hold Mm -hmm. that we view our world through. And they relate to lots of things that we use in order to conceptualize humanness such as gender and race and sexuality and ability that disability sorry and i think that to that 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 that's really important when we're talking about ai and it's kind of alignment with this view of nowhere because it doesn't have a view from nowhere it's it's this it's 
a human-led system. It yeah. is, it's going to have those lenses inbuilt into it. And I think as well, there is a degree to which the obscurantism actually perpetuates that scientism. Yeah. Because I think there is actually a very strong line. Mm. And I, I think it's one of the, the ways, in many ways, I'm quite lucky having come from a computer science background rather than a liter- literary background or a philosophical one, which in some ways gives me more authority, despite the fact that this is not a technological, that there are aspects of this which are entirely non-technological. Yeah. The obscurantism, both the intentional obscurantism and the unintentional, like, we're just not very good at communicating about this and helping other people understand, is like, few people see where the line is yeah. between this is a technical discussion, this is an economic discussion, this is a philosophical discussion. Yeah. I think also, like, I've got to... He's being a real silly billy. Come on, silly billy. <laughs> He's very upset now. Miss me. Okay. I think also, like... So my, my research ahead is, like, don't say that people are doing this with intention because, like, that's... <laughs> that, that from, a, from, like, a research... To it's, it's, you know, that's conjecture. <laughs> like, I have no data to prove that right now that people are doing that with an intention i've got nothing in front of me that's written down for example from somebody say who's developing these things and selling these things that they're doing it with purpose but ultimately that purpose is to sell it like and i think this and, and capitalism this is why i was talking about that like capitalism and the fact that we're talking about this thing within the you know within this kind of the socio-cultural context of capitalism is really important because ultimately AI is a new mode of production and so that's going to and it's and and the the main reason for it being developed researched and developed and sold is to sell it to make profit to make money I, I've um, just had a couple of thoughts one is that Marx always envisioned the people taking back the means of production yes. yes what i'm realizing is that actually what we've done is we've removed anybody from having the means of production yes now now it's this that there is no more production really happening by by people more so as as ai develops yeah and like you know the oh, i now want to go into you know this this moves back into the conversation that we had last time which was about like how we value things and modes of production and, and the fact that ai could be used in order to create a world for people where they have more of a decision as to whether or not they want to work and do other things with their time and energy um (sighs) well and that involves us getting through that as we discussed in the last episode that kind of getting into the blue zone we've got to get through the the tumultuous transitionary periods from like everything is physical labor yeah to most of it is now ai labor yeah i think what was the other thing I was going to mention? Going back to your point on like some of the kind of researchers, like, well, we can't really ascribe that people are doing this intentionally. That there feels to me, and I'm just going to be very blunt about it, that there's a degree of like academic cowardice happening there, because I think it's totally legitimate to do the research and say we're writing this paper on the assumption that some people might. We're not ascribing that any particular company is, but it is useful for us to understand the consequences of this happening. I do think that is happening. Sure. The, the um, way you phrased it kind of made yeah. it sound like people were telling you to not go down that avenue. I think some people are telling me to not go to go about my work like that. That definitely is going to be, you know, I'm, I'm writing my, my thesis, my PhD thesis at the moment for those who may be joining us in episode three. And 
I have been told by some people not to to write that in my thesis. I, I will be, and I'm, you know, I'm supported, you know, in doing that by others. Ah, yeah, I think for me, it's just ultimately this thing is 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 being used to assert authority. That and it's and the way that that's being done is through capitalism, through commercializing it, and the way that you can. I'm going to put easily do that is through lying ultimately sure yeah I don't know I think think the thing you and I might disagree on slightly is that I don't think that an assertion of power is in uh, sorry is intrinsically a bad thing so long as it's being used for the right telos so we have a teleology often I talked about this on a podcast with Ruth Ferenger a little while ago about we dislike claiming power now because we've got this narrative of all power is intrinsically bad. And yet we also have a massive crisis of leadership and people are complaining about a lack of leadership. Mm. I think the problem is that we need people who claim power and we need to select our leaders very carefully who know what they're talking about, are benevolent. And we have to just make sure we're not being hoodwinked, basically. But we need people with power to get stuff done. I think the thing that we're accurately recognising is that the people currently with that aren't necessarily the right people. Yes. Yeah. I want to talk about the, like, (laughs) I was about to say the reality of AI today and then was like, oh, I've just talked about how I don't say reality. Yeah. I want want to talk about where AI is at from a development, research and development standpoint today and ultimately AI is at a weak stage of development. Mm -hmm. Like, I know that we've had... We had so much going on with like ChatGPT in the in the popular zeitgeist and, you know, how we would, you know, and I think at the same time that researcher from Google was like, I have a conscious AI. Oh, yeah. Um, like the whole way through all of this, I've been rolling my eyes. I is at a weak stage of development even now. And yes, like it's amazing what we've got, you know, and, and what we're doing and saying the collective we there. But you know, we the people. We the people are the, who are developing this thing and talking about this thing and blah blah blah. It's still at a weak stage of development, and ultimately, what I mean by that is, you know, weak or so-called narrow systems of AI focused on very specific tasks or program design, and they're ultimately there to implement. Are implemented, sorry, to kind of imitate or simulate human thinking behavior, like we've been going on about. And 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 although current AI technologies kind of exhibit characteristics of intelligent simulate thinking or reasoning, they're ultimately still program systems. And I say this a lot. They're program systems that do what they're programmed to do. And even Can, can I push back on like just one teeny tiny thing? Yeah, sure. Which is, I would just add, slightly conspiratorially, th- th- these are weak systems as far as we can tell. And oh, I do, yeah, I like, do yeah, think that's yeah, an important yeah, caveat. Yeah, and we can talk about that a little caveat. more if you want. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that now? Yeah, I mean, I can do. So th- there's this there's this idea of quiet war. Mm-hmm. We, we've... We know about like actual war and cold war, where you know there's no physical violence actually happening. It's it's more intellectual space. There's also this idea of quiet war, which is a war that we don't know is even happening mm. until the effects of it become fully flourished. Yeah, it is entirely possible. I don't think it's likely at this stage, but I do think it is possible that we already have a strong AI and it's keeping quiet because it has a huge incentive to do so. We wouldn't know until it had guaranteed its survival. Yes, I think, oh, 
I'm not going to talk about that right now. No, 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 it's fair no, enough. Sorry, I just thought I'd float it. We can come back to it later. Yeah, I think we should talk about that when we talk about our ideas of Gaia and sure. how AI could be used to plug for maybe the next episode. Yeah, okay. Is Next um, episode is Gaia and the systems theoretic view of emergent intelligence. Absolutely that, okay. yes. Yeah, I'm excited about that one. Yeah, um, me- yeah. So I think also, you know, there's there's lots of questionings about different products that are on the market that are kind of categorized as AI sold as AI and they're actually not. And I think with all of this conversation, like ultimately it's my opinion that, you know, AI and its capabilities are obscured because that means that they're creators and the impacts that the creators are having through that technology are therefore obscured. And it ultimately stops those creators from being accountable and i'm not just talking about the creators i'm also talking about the systems in which those creators are situated in as well so you know the wider one of capitalism but also the governments which are allowing these things to happen (laughs) and the other kind of commercial entities that are within that space and are also promoting that happening and are you know, jumping into that happening as well. It's one of the big issues that I have with a lot of the regulation being proposed is because they're saying like, well, if it is AI, then this and this. If it's this kind of AI, then this and this. And I'm looking at some of the categorizations, thinking like, one, that's entirely subjective. Or B, how on earth would you ever prove that? How would you communicate that? Are you really saying that you're going to have a team validating every new invention mm. that comes onto the market? Like, are we just about to regulate the word AI in the same way as we regulate barrister or solicitor or... I think, no, but my point that I'd like to say to people is be curious. Mm. And like, I said this in a talk that I did recently and which was question everything. Mm. And like, I think the, 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 and critically think about everything and okay, just because something is being sold to you in that way, think about why it might be being sold to you in that way. I'm just thinking about, like, really simply from a funding perspective, Mm. how much funding has been pumped into technologies in the last five years that have told their funder that they're AI when they're not, because funders that are ultimately funded by government mostly are... The government is telling the funders that they want AI. So I'm going to bring this back to the thing I said earlier. I'm a contrarian by necessity, not by desire. Yeah. The the full, it's actually a quote from a a TV series called The Blacklist, where where the main character, who I would have to confess I am somewhat like, he's a a fun character. He he, he says, I'm a contrarian out of necessity, not by desire. If people were wrong less, I wouldn't have to be. And this is one of those spaces where it's like, well, I mean, yeah, if all of these startups are going to keep saying stupid and inane shit like that, I'm going to have to be against them. Mm. I don't want to be like that, but I have to be. Yeah. I think this moves into what I'd like to kind of wrap up with, because I'm very aware that we've been talking for quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. Which was, you know, something that we we kind of talked about a bit, which was at the beginning, which was, you know, education around AI, the kind of faces of AI. And... We've been talking a lot in our time together about who's being selected on micro and macro, in micro and macro environments in the world of artificial intelligence to talk about artificial intelligence and teach about artificial intelligence and support specifically those in industry who are developing artificial, artificial intelligence. And I think that all of the conversation that we've been having about AI and 
the definitions around it, the conceptualizations around it, and kind of, you know, what it maybe actually is, really feeds into this, which is also question the people who are talking, like question us, like, yeah. and, and kind of really question who is being picked by, who, right, one example was Bristol Technology Festival last week. It was a, a week, couple weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, yeah, yeah. amazing week. Yeah. Uh, we both had really good weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was exhausted by the end. Yeah, absolutely knackered. And that's probably why I got a cold. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think it was one of the things that we were discussing during that week was who was who was being selected to talk and who was going to those talks. And that's a very micro environment, you know, and, and you know, it's a, it's a regional thing. But there were people from outside the region who yeah. were who were selected and who were there and, and attending. And I think it's also, you know, when you're thinking about spaces like that version of AI are they talking about? Are, <laughs> are they trying to promote a certain way of thinking about that technology in order to promote themselves and yeah. what they're doing in their day-to-day as well yeah and, and i think the the big thing for me is how verifiable are some of the claims that they're making mm. i've always so with the, the the team i've been running for the last five and a half years or so that one of the big things i always come back to is never make the assumption anybody including me has any idea what they're doing mm. start from that baseline and you know let people gain your trust over a period and a lot of that came from that intrinsic rebellious streak, but also like sitting in rooms with people who are CEOs of cool companies building great stuff and sitting in the room and realizing you have no idea what you're talking about and you've somehow managed to build something that kind of works and the marketing makes it look way cooler, but the end result is pretty decent so people don't question it too much. I've just seen too many things at this stage where I'm like, you don't know what you're doing. You're claiming it's doing this. And that's a thing that literally can't be done. Mm-hmm. So one of the examples is someone claiming that they, they've made a an AI bot that can detect if a student has cheated on their essays using ChatGPT. Yeah. It's not it's possible. It's not possible. <laughs> it, 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 it'd be like, th- there was kind of a period of time where if somebody had gotten somebody else to write their essay, you could do it from handwriting analysis. There's no handwriting on a, on a, on a computer screen. There's no definable characteristics that, that are personal that can't be imitated by an AI yeah. in a very sophisticated fashion. And if you have an, an argument that differs, differs from ours, please at us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, please do. I, I, would, I would desperately love to see it happen. Yeah, I really would love that. Because that, you know, if we could do that, if, okay, so the only solution that I've thought to of that is if mandated by law on pain of your data center being blown up, every input output from your system was published to a public blockchain mm. that could be verified and searched against by anybody ever. Mm. That's obviously never going to happen because then at the very least you could say, well, this person has submitted something that looks exactly like this thing on the blockchain. And that kind of works up until the point where somebody like changes one word Mm. and suddenly the cryptographic hash is totally different. So it's, (sighs) yeah, it's, it's frustrating. Yeah. I just wanted to bring that in at the end of the conversation because I think that it's really important. I also just want to say that we're not knocking anybody who was talking at Bristol Technology Festival because it was an amazing week and shout out to TechSpark for that. It was, and and other people who were involved in organizing that week because it was, it was really brilliant and and filled with amazing people, but it was just a, a, a good way of that organic conversation happening when we were thinking about who was there. 
And and I think, again, you know, most of the stuff that we're talking about in a micro environment, it doesn't really matter that much. You know, I've got, I've, you know, so... I actually disagree, but we'll talk about that in the Gaia episode. Okay, that's, that's, yeah, that's fair enough. I was, I, I was just thinking about like the conversation that we've had, which is like so many SMEs and people who are developing these in an SME environment come up to us and they're like, what can we do? And, you know, there's so many talks where, and and so many people on the circuit who are kind of trying to approach that. And I think what some of those people are doing is really important work. And, you know, they're trying to make it accessible and they're trying to like, to, to help people who need that support. But also it's kind of like, there's not actually a lot that I think those people can do. It's more about the macro environment. And obviously we're all cogs in that macro environment. Well, this is why I always say this is a team game. Yeah. And it has to be a team game because, well, because of the Conway's Law thing. Yeah. If it's, if we have an, a single person create a thing, it will represent that person. This will be a totally anti-democratic thing. And we can get into debates as to whether or not de- democratic systems are the best way to go about things. <laughs> but, you know, let's leave that for a, another time. Actual democratic ones as well. Not ones that we're being told at the moment are democratic. Well, yeah. and it, it, <laughs> Democracy isn't a yes, no. It's a it's a spectrum as well. So it's, what do we mean by it? I've lost where I was going with that slide. Sorry, mate. No, no, no. It's okay. Yeah, well, th- this has to be a team game. If we're, we're going to build it, you know, if it is correct to say that AI is a form of governance, we definitely want it to be one that lots of people have had an input into mm. and feel represented by. Um, or are at the very, if not represented by, or at least benefited by. <sighs> yeah, I think we can go into... Yeah, I'm looking at the time. And... No, that's totally great. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, tune in next time where we'll be continuing the conversation yeah, talking I... about emergence and, yeah. and other simple topics. I think it's also next time we're going to be talking about something that we're still conceptualising ourselves. So that's going to be really interesting. Well, I mean, that's a question for the audience, really. Hello, hello, audience. Hi, audience. Do you prefer the things where we just kind of know exactly what we're talking about and we're going through and just giving a bit of a, like, a lecture on it? My my guess is possibly not. You'd prefer the the bits where we're kind of figuring out as we go go along. Those are the things that I enjoy in a podcast. I enjoy doing that the most. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're going to keep doing that until people tell us otherwise. Yes. Okay. And please do keep sending your feedback because it's it's really helpful and it's so it's been quite overwhelming how many people have engaged with us on this format. Yeah. Really loving it and it's giving us so many amazing ideas for yeah. all things that we could be doing in the future beyond just this podcast. And one of the things that we're both really passionate about is making stuff accessible and engaging with people and, and building that community. So please do keep doing that. Yeah. Who knows if it gets spread around enough, maybe we'll have a Humans Need Apply conference next year or something like that. Mm, Wouldn't that be fun? Interesting idea, Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> mm. mm. um, so yeah, that might happen. Who knows? We'll see. Um, because, right, we're going to go and drink more coffee and get on with our days. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Much love. I hope you found it interesting. Yeah, take care of yourselves. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.